There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, I have a question for you that I bet you're going to really enjoy answering. Okay, hit me. Okay, what's your favorite wacky, old-timey Supreme Court name? Like, of a guy who was really on the Supreme Court, and this was his real name. Really on the Supreme Court, and it's his real name. Yes. Well, Aaron, I've got to go with Brockholst Livingston. Brockholst Livingston. That's a good one. I think my favorite real Supreme Court justice from American history's name was Lucius Quintus C. Lamar. But do you think that that's leaving Salmon Portland Chase out in the cold? Salmon Portland Chase actually was the chief justice of the Supreme Court for a while. Um, maybe. S old Salmon P. Chase was a, was a pretty crazy name. But what about Bushrod Washington? Well, I think he was friends with Wheeler Peckham. Rufus? You mean Rufus Wheeler Peckham? Oh, Rufus Wheeler Peckham. How could I have forgotten his first name? But I mean, really, can any compare to David Davis? <laughs> or Horace Lurton? Here's my question. At least in like the 70s when I was born, people could be like, like I had a friend in high school whose real name was Sky Blue. That was her first and middle name. At least then people could blame being like, well, my mom was on an acid trip when she named me or some shit. These people were just eating very wholesome food. <laughs> yeah, these people probably were riddled with syphilis. I think back then. <laughs> it's a very good point. Very good point. This week, Commissioner Nikki Freed, Ambassador Samantha Power, Tian Tran, and Grace Para joined to tackle the following questions. What makes Florida's Ron DeSantis such a crappy governor? What were President Obama and Ambassador Power fighting about right before she went into labor? Why do powerful men keep making excuses for violent acts of misogyny and hate? And should blue jeans just go away forever? All this and more right now. Okay, we have a really packed show this week, Alyssa. That's exciting. It feels good. It's exciting. It's nice. We've got some really exciting people to talk to. Um, we're going to talk to one of them right now. But first, we have to give a shout out to, well, you're a Deb head. Why don't you do it? We're Deb heads. Deb Holland confirmed U.S. Department of Interior. Finally, a first American who is in charge of America's lands. We could not be more excited. We really did try to give President Biden a lot of room in picking his cabinet, but we could not hide our enthusiasm at the idea of Deb Haaland being Secretary of the Interior. And now she is. And we're Deb heads mm -hmm. forever. I'm so excited. And I think that she's going to do a great job and um, we'll be, you know, we'll be watching and, and celebrating her victories and, and hoping that, you know, she's the best Secretary of the Interior of all time. I think she might be. I wish that there were cameras so we could see all the polar bears high-fiving. <laughs> oh, my God. Why Imagine. doesn't that exist? I want to see the polar bears high-fiving. They know. 
They know. They definitely know. Okay, well, let's get to our first guest because, you know, we're celebrating Deb Holland, uh, but there's some people that definitely deserve to not be celebrated this week. One of them is the governor of Florida. So let's talk to somebody who has some firsthand knowledge about what's going on in Florida and uh, why things are bad. She's currently the only Democrat elected to a statewide office in Florida. She is Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services, Nikki Freed. Welcome, Nikki. Well, thank you so much for, for having me on today. And really, quite honestly, thank you for everything that you guys are doing. Uh, the fact that you are targeting uh, people in, in, in red states that are standing up uh, is really incredible and in helping those of us who are in those positions uh, really carry our voices and know that there's a, a lot of support out there for what we do. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Um, so Florida has made headlines lately for a lot of concerning COVID-related reasons. Um, as somebody who's actually there, how has the last year of the COVID pandemic gone for you? And how has it gone for your fellow uh, Floridians? You know, for me personally, uh, it's been just as just as hard as it is for everybody else out there. Uh, you know, haven't been able to see my family either. I've got a 91-year-old grandmother. Uh, I've got my mother in South Florida who also had uh, chemo, had cancer and was going through chemo, so not able to see her. So it's been, you know, hard for all of us, you know, until now that we've got some vaccines here in the state, but uh, certainly it's been difficult. And unfortunately, here in the state of Florida, uh, you've got these two camps, you know, one camp that, you know, are very into the Trump world, that you have no masks and that we, you know, really were trying to throw parties during spring break last year and, and pack the stadiums during Super Bowls, both in Miami from last year and, and Tampa this year. And then you have our other half of the state that hasn't seen family, hasn't been to funerals, haven't seen, you know, births of grandchildren and weddings and just holidays and, and that are really so scared, have lost loved ones or have seen loved ones get really sick and be on ventilators. And unfortunately, we've got a Republican governor uh, who took his marching orders this entire time from President Trump. Uh, so wouldn't do anything without the permission from, from from Trump, whether that was to close down the state, whether it was to open the state. We had no uh, mask mandate. Uh, the, the orders that came out of his office were confusing. He was hiding numbers and changing numbers from the Department of Health, uh, not releasing information. It has been a dumpster fire here in the state of Florida. And but for our local mayors and our city and council members from across the state who stepped up during these times to protect their communities, uh, we would have been um, very, very far worse off than we are today. Speaking of your governor, Ron DeSantis, it seems like a lot of problems in Florida can be traced to him. Can you explain how DeSantis's handling of the pandemic has made it worse? Yeah, uh, you know, lack of leadership. You know, again, that he has fought was following Trump the entire time. So anything that Trump said, you know, pushing all of the, the hoax types of vaccines and medications, you know, you then all of a sudden Florida is buying them. Uh, you know, so he just has really been so up, you know, up to to get the support of President Trump. And then what happened also is he would be changing numbers and changing theories of, no, we don't have community spread. Oh, wait, maybe we do. Or it doesn't impact our kids. Wait, maybe it does. And so he went out of his way almost to continue to confuse people. So instead of having a leader who went to the cameras every day, put confidence into the people of our state, said, listen, we're all in this together. Please wear a mask. Please social distance. I know it's hard not seeing your family and your friends 
but we got to do this together. In order for our economy to rebound, we've got to get through beating this virus. And he didn't do any of that. He has really taken himself out of any conversations with experts. Our Surgeon General here in the state of Florida, we haven't seen for nine months. Uh, he was pulled out of a press conference because he wasn't, you know, spewing the same, you know, rhetoric that the, the governor was spewing. And he got pulled out of a press conference and we haven't seen him since, you know, oh we're in the middle gosh. of a healthcare crisis and our Surgeon General is nowhere to be found. Um, and, and so he has not listened to, to experts. He brings around the, those hoax experts that we saw President Trump talking about how, you know, herd immunity is, is the way to go. And, and that's how the governor reacted, you know, opened up our state uh, completely uh, with no guidelines, no metrics of, of, you know, how to have 25% business capacity or 50% and kind of slowly going into this. He stopped talking to me uh, a long time ago where my responsibility is feeding our state uh, refused to have me on reopening task forces, wasn't talking to me, wasn't engaging in my office, doesn't talk to the rest of the cabinet, uh, infrequently talks to leadership of our Senate and, and our, our House of Representatives, doesn't talk to our U.S. senators, our members of Congress, has gone this alone. And now he's just out there on his own giving out vaccines uh, to wealthy donors and you know making it a pay to play for even getting the vaccine. Uh, so it has been an absolute disaster here in the state. And to all the people that are listening and that are from the state of Florida, I just want to apologize on, on behalf of government that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And this didn't have to be this bad if he would have just been listening to science, been cautious, not been so abrasive uh, to the media and to people that aren't necessarily in his same mindset. Can you actually, for our listeners, explain a little bit more about the pay-to-play as it relates to the vaccines? Who is he prioritizing in vaccine distribution? Yeah, you know, first it was, you know, first come, first serve for our seniors, uh, which was an absolute disaster. Uh, there was no state plan. There was no organization. There was no talking to your local Department of Health or your hospitals. He just said, you know, first come, first serve and, and started distributing the vaccines. So that was the first disaster. And then he started kind of getting smart and started realizing that he can have a political win um, by designating these vaccines to Republican areas, um, areas where he has, has received significant campaign contributions. Uh, we have three already documented areas here in our state where a vaccine pop-up site, we're calling them pop-up sites because they're, they're not uh, organized. They, they come at the last minute. Typically, it, fall, you know, it was because he had a press conference in that area. And you know, three specific instances, we had one that was in what's called Manatee County here in, in Florida, where it was two specific zip codes. And the uh, county commissioner from that area created a VIP list that was at the direction of the governor of who was going to get these vaccines uh, before everybody else. And exclusive zip codes, which happened to have been the wealthiest two zip codes in that county. And when the governor was questioned about it, he says, well, I can just move them to, to another place if you guys aren't happy with getting vaccines here. And meanwhile, the other part of town, the west part of town, it is really an underserved minority community that had no vaccines. Uh, and you only could be getting these vaccines if you lived in this zip code. And we then saw the amount of campaign contributions from this area that had gone in previously or in the last couple of months to the governor. We saw the same thing a little bit further south in one of our other counties uh, where there is a wealthy Republican donor uh, who has given significant campaign contributions to him over the last couple of years and is a developer. And these vaccines were going into this developer's exclusive communities. 
uh, again, gated communities that other people couldn't get into. And I think the most atrocious one that we have seen is down in uh, the Keys, uh, in one of uh, Key Largo, in one of these, again, exclusive resort areas uh, where there were 17 individuals that gave $5,000 campaign contributions in the month of December. Uh, a past Republican governor from Illinois that gave a $250,000 uh, campaign contribution. And the hospital that gave them the vaccines canceled appointments for other people to re, you know, shift these vaccines to this area. And there's also a membership for it for this community. And people that were members couldn't even get the vaccines. You actually had to be an equity shareholder of this community in order to get these vaccines. And now the governor is saying, well, I wasn't involved in this one. This was a, you know, through the Baptist Health. Meanwhile, Baptist has said, Governor, we would have never done this without somebody from your office giving us like, the green light. So there's back and forth and back and forth. And that's just three examples that we know of today. Uh, I can go on and list other times when we know he's going into a community um, or that it's been just released that there's a press conference in you know, Volusia County and that there's going to be a pop-up site in Volusia County. But meanwhile, the day before, uh, the Republican Club of Volusia County sent out an email uh, encouraging people to go and see the governor and get your vaccine. Uh, and again, this is not a wide distribution of that county. This is just the Republican Club of that community. And again, so we are just constantly seeing that he's using these vaccines as a tool uh, to reward his donors, to reward people that have supported the Republican Party. And at the same respect, those counties and those city commissioners who have been more critical of him, uh, he is not providing vaccines in those areas or going around them uh, to provide into those communities. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Well, that seems sounds like a lot of covering up for something that a year ago he was calling a hoax. Wow, that's a lot of... Are they just pantomimed <laughs> vaccines that he's giving to people? Or like, come on, pick a lane, governor. Um, from a public health perspective, what happens when people who need the vaccine most aren't prioritized? Like, what have you seen as the overall harm when so many people have been allowed to cut in line? Yeah, the, the problem is, is that, you know, right now our teachers aren't getting vaccinated. You know, unless you are 55 and above and have a health concern, our teachers are not being vaccinated. Uh, our farm workers, the things that I oversee, are not a priority. So these are the individuals that, that haven't stopped working. You know, our farmers have been out there uh, making sure that we're feeding not just our state, but our, but our country. You know, we're seeing the people that work at the food stores are not prioritized. So these individuals that have put their lives on the line every single day for us that are essential workers are, are waiting in the back of the line. And the other part is that the individuals that are, are not getting the vaccine, because again, they're, they're waiting on websites and waiting for this, you know, sacred vaccines, you know, sign up and appointment, they're staying home which means they're not contributing to the economy and the rebuilding of the economy. And if we're doing things like this, you know, it is taking away the, the, the concept that everybody's got an equal opportunity to, to succeed in life and, and to live. And, and we already know that there is, you know, a disparagement and, dis and inequality with our healthcare system, not just in Florida, but across the country, but even worse in Florida, um, because Florida has refused to accept of the federal government's money and has not expanded uh, Medicaid here in the state. So we have a good portion of our state, about 2.8 million Floridians that don't have access uh, to a primary caregiver. Uh, so we've got a big problem here that you are really disenfranchising and really hurting minority communities more so than, than our white communities and our rich uh, Republican donors. And so there's a, a ripple effect that is going on. And a lot of these underserved communities already have health issues to begin with. 
you know, already have, you know, whether it's diabetes or other types of conditions that um, we needed to make sure that we prioritize them. And then the next great thing that the governor did was he expanded it out um, for those who have medical issues and, and need these vaccines. But here's, here's the kicker. You need to have a doctor's note. And oh. again, as I just said, 2.8 million Floridians uh, don't have a primary doctor. So how are they getting that doctor's note? And some doctors are charging $350 to get the notes. So now those communities that are already underserved, um, again, are put at the back of the line, which they have seen consistently uh, through this pandemic. And quite honestly, uh, the last 25 years here in the state of Florida under Republican leadership. Wow. What a garbage human. Um, are you seeing any encouraging signs in the state that things may turn a corner despite your terrible governor? Yeah. And that's because of FEMA. Uh, you know, now because President Biden has really ramped up uh, the delivery of the vaccines across the country, we're seeing more and more here in the state of Florida. The actual permanent sites from FEMA are coming online. Uh, unfortunately, first, the governor was not promoting those because he wasn't getting a political win. Uh, so why promote those FEMA sites? And so the FEMA sites, unfortunately, for, a few, for you know, a good portion of the last week, uh, there was no one there. You know, that they were going, they, they couldn't give out enough of the vaccines. And then the other problem with him not promoting this uh, is the fact that he hasn't opened up the eligibility. So a lot more people would have gone to these sites. However, the sites are here. The sites are here. The vaccines are here in the state of Florida. Uh, and so I'm definitely encouraged that as, you know, hopefully President Biden continues to push uh, forward his, his recovery plan and getting, you know, work speed on uh, the delivery of these vaccines, more and more people will get them, uh, which will hopefully, you know, make people get back to normality, get people traveling again. You know, tourism is our number one economic driver. If we don't have people coming here to the state of Florida visiting, uh, then we really are going to have an economic downturn here in, in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm glad that there's some green shoots and that there's some kind of signs that maybe the worst is over and that there might be some healing coming. Um, and we like to end on a lighter note here. So um, as a lifelong Floridian, <laughs> as, a, as a triple gator, three degrees from the University of Florida, I find that so impressive. What is your favorite thing about Florida and what is a hidden gem for somebody who is visiting from out of state? What would you show them? So my favorite part of the state is definitely our beaches. Um, I have traveled our entire state and our entire coast. Every beach is a little bit different. Uh, you've got Miami Beach uh, is very different than the beaches that are in the panhandle. All different experiences, but all beautiful. Um, and so we, we're surrounded by that. And I think that our hidden gem that most people, when they come to the state, they talk, go to the beaches, they go to Disney World, uh, is our springs. Uh, we have some of the most amazing, incredible natural springs uh, that I spend a lot of time uh, working to protect. Uh, they are some of the most gorgeous opportunities and just fresh water and just, they're just awesome. And so for anybody who's traveling to the state, uh, look up uh, the Florida Springs first and make sure that you are incorporating them into your travel plans. Well, thank you so much, Commissioner. The next time I'm in Florida, I will check out the Springs. That is a hidden gem for me too. I had never heard of them. Um, thanks so much for joining us. This was great. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on today and keep up the great work out there. Thanks. Okay, we have to take a break, but when we come back, Ambassador Samantha Power.
This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix zero-sugar hydration drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe mushroom coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I just like, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast. No dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito. (laughs) Not, Not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And welcome back. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Samantha Power. She has got a resume that just won't quit. She's a war journalist turned diplomat who served eight years under the Obama administration, first on the National Security Council as Senior Director of Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights, and then UN Ambassador. She's an author, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and now she's President Biden's nominee to serve as head of the U.S. Agency for International Development, Welcome, Ambassador Power. Thank you, Erin. Well, before we get into the weeds, I want to talk holistically about your life and career. When you look back on your accomplishments, setbacks, milestones in your life, is there a single moment or experience that you remember that defined or changed your trajectory that you still hold on to now? Yes, and Alyssa will remember this well. Uh, and I, I don't think I've ever heard from her her side of the story, but one of the... at Up to this particular point in my life, the highlight of my professional life was getting to work on the Obama campaign uh, back in 2007 into 2008. And it was just incredibly inspiring and satisfying for this scrappy insurgent campaign that nobody had really expected to actually win primaries. I think they thought, oh, what a great symbolic 
achievement it will be for Obama to do well. And then, you know, someday in the future when he's more seasoned, he'll come back and maybe one day he will be president because obviously his great promise. And instead it was so satisfying. And I'd worked on my own as a war correspondent initially and as a nonfiction writer and as a human rights activist, and even as a professor where I had students, I devised my syllabi on my own and so forth. So working on the Obama campaign was the first time I'd ever been part of a big team and um, a team where all of my colleagues that I that I knew seemed motivated by all the right things. It didn't have the aura in those days of what I had associated with Washington. You know, everybody just sort of looking out for themselves. They really believed, we really believed in this candidate and what he stood for. So it was a kind of magical time. And and I had played team sports as a kid and I'm very sporty. And and so it was like just back to, you know, being being part of a team. And then I uh, screwed up massively and in retrospect really was flying too close to the sun and wasn't sleeping enough and was too kind of caught up uh, in the campaign and probably the competition. And so I got really mad at Hillary Clinton after uh, she took out, and not she personally, but her campaign took out an attack ad on my college uh, classmate, uh, Austin Goolsby, who some of you know. And so in what I thought was an off-the-record conversation with a reporter, I said bad things about her, and those all got published, and I had to resign from the campaign. And now, why did that alter my career trajectory, given that I landed on my feet in retrospect? Well, first of all, I had no thought then that that could happen, that I could recover. Um, I, I, I had the experience of Googling myself and and, th- you know, being told, well, maybe it won't be a big deal, including by Obama, who said, ah, don't worry about it. We all say stupid things, but don't do it again. And then it just, I don't know why, it was like I hit a nerve at a time when our two, the Obama and the Hillary Clinton campaign, were in great tension with each other. And so I became a kind of symbol of the cattiness on my part and and uh, and the kind of tensions between these two people who saw the world in, in many similar ways, but where there were differences that then got... Uh, you know, amplified in a tense political context. But when I got the call, it was David Axelrod who called me and said, we actually, despite Obama initially thinking, just write it out, like, you know, this is, you should resign and that'll help us. Uh, When that happened, it was the first time in my life that I looked at the calendar and I had nothing in my professional life ahead. It was just (laughs) blank. And I had not up to that point in my life taken much care with my personal life. And and just by coincidence, I had met this guy, Cass Sunstein, who had been Obama's colleague at the University of Chicago. And we'd met on the Obama campaign just a couple months before my highly public uh, implosion. And so in that moment of great vulnerability and with the future wide open, because I literally did not have one thing on my schedule because my whole universe was the campaign and suddenly it was gone. My friendships uh, were gone because people were off, you know, doing their thing. People were nice and checked in on me, but, but it was so different than, you know, being on this, on this team together and Cass was there. And, and I, for the first time in my life, I allowed someone who wasn't an immediate family member to take care of me because I was almost catatonic and I was so ashamed that I'd done this to the campaign and and I just was completely on the floor. And and Cass was so good to me and so kind. 
And I thought we, had, again, things were going okay in the relationship, but that was right around the time where my antibodies normally kicked in. And I began the, what my, what, what my, what my friends called the scavenger hunt for the fatal flaw. I'm, I'm sure I was, I was days away from finding that. But instead, I just kind of melted into uh, his care and his goodness. And uh, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, in a sense of, I, I don't know that I ever would have had the discipline to just say, actually, my personal life matters too, not just changing the world and supporting a great uh, candidate or trying to promote human rights in this way or that way, that that my fuel now and my life comes from my 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 family, my kids, my my husband, Cass. Um, and I just don't, it's we can't rewind the clock. And and for so long I just wanted to rewind the clock and wanted to undo these words and and to maintain you, you know this this incredible opportunity that I that I had on this amazing team and be part of the whole journey that Alyssa and, and others were part of. Uh, and I wanted to go back in time, but now I, it was like a sort of knockdown blow, which proves that you can bounce back also professionally if, you, if you're willing to swallow your pride and your dignity and other things along the way. But also just sometimes it takes an artificial uh, meteor almost to get you to kind of right the balance uh, in your life. And, and as a woman, professional woman, like the idea of admitting vulnerability or admitting I needed help that wasn't high on my to-do list until it was imposed on me by by real world uh, events and by my own stupidity. Well, Sam, <laughs> that is um, so. One, the I think the interesting thing is I don't know if it's naivete or if it is that we were young or what, but I mean, I actually worth mentioning. I actually didn't meet you on the campaign. I'd known you since two thousand five. Oh no, of course, yes. When Barack Obama came into the U.S. Senate, one of the first people he wanted to meet with. Uh, after he was appointed to the Foreign Relations Committee, was you. Except he didn't say Samantha Power. He said Susan Power. And I was like, you mean Susan Powder? Like the, like, inspirational wackadoo? Oh, man, you, you didn't tell me this before. This would have been perfect for the education of an idealist. Like, this he was, was the like, perfect way of- And so I came back to him, and I was like, is this what you want me to find? And he's like, literally the face, you know that he gets. Yeah. You're the stupidest person right now. And he was like, Samantha Power, Pulitzer Prize winner. I was like, oh, he's sorry. And so we had known each other. So, and we lived near each other on Capitol Hill. So I used to see you on your green bike all the time on the way to and from work. So when that happened and you had to leave the campaign years later, there was such outrage. Like if we had known that we could have like unionized to bring you back, like that's Uh, what would have happened because it seemed, based on how that whole campaign was going, it seemed quite absurd that of all people who would have to leave any campaign, it would be you. But neither here nor there at this point because we got you back. Yeah, it was bringing back all the the bats in the bat cave. So my head is a bat cave, right? So the bats are all flying around now, all the demons getting resurrected but but it was a great it was a great group <laughs> i mean i was just watched you from afar killing it you know through the rest of the campaign and just and just hoping that people would return my calls once it was all said and done and then we were all together once again but one of the reasons that barack obama did want to talk to you back then in 2005 was because of all the work that you had been doing you started your career as a war correspondent covering the yugoslav wars in the 1990s before coming into government how did that experience inform your future career path and also what inspired you to transition from covering stories to changing stories 
Yeah, it's a great question. Well, I think, so we, we look back at all these phases and think we were so young and we were so innocent. But I, I did go to the former Yugoslavia, right, not about a year after I graduated from college. And I went with the idea of never again in my mind. I was, I, I was an, I'm an immigrant to America from, from Ireland. Uh, and I, I only mentioned that in the context of I think some immigrants, at least, we 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 believe the slogans and we we take them pretty seriously. And I was coming of age at a time when the Holocaust and the lessons of the Holocaust were getting heightened attention in high schools and in college campuses and so forth. And the museum on the mall had just opened, dedicated to commemorating this this horrific crime. And yet there was Bosnia and women being hauled into rape camps and, and men in not death camps like Auschwitz, but concentration camps where many of them were executed and so forth. And so I went over there, you know, saying this is so inconsistent, uh, shocked, shocked that, that people in Washington and elsewhere could be inconsistent. And <laughs> I think my experience on the ground, I mean, first of all, I made friendships um, with particularly the young female correspondents. Many people were drawn to that conflict for the same reason, just really the Cold War had just ended and there was a feeling of such promise. And it was like, wait, why is ethnic cleansing happening? And why aren't people doing something about this? So a kind of very different um, spirit, let's say, than exists today among young people who are much more inclined to say, let's get out of that place and pull back, you know, given how long these... Uh, wars have lasted and how um, how insufficient the impact uh, that has been made feels like it has been. Um, so I, I think on the ground, probably what I got were those uh, those female friendships. They were all years later, 20 years later, would become, uh, you know, maids of honor and, and bridesmaids in my wedding and so forth. Um, I think learning to to write, but not just to write, to try to bridge the distance between two radically different experiences, that of my readers back in the United States and that of people who were being shelled or sniped at because of their religion or their ethnicity and just always kind of having that eye. And you're great at this, um, both of you, but Alyssa, I saw you do this at the at the White House, is just thinking about your audience and then, okay, how do we put this in language that is going to resonate for people who aren't here? They're not They're not living our political constraints. Or in the case of Bosnia, they're not... They don't know what it's like to send your kid off to school and not know if if that child is going to come come back home. Needless to say, some Americans <laughs> do have that fear, uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, but but by and large, you know, a lot of the readers did not, and so I think that ended up being hugely important as a diplomat. You know, thinking, okay, I've got my agenda, but I've got to walk in your shoes, even the Russian ambassador's shoes. I got to find a way to hang out in his shoes and think about what it'd be like to work for Putin and be, think about how I get him to yes, given that on the UN Security Council, I can't do anything without Russia's acquiescence because of the veto. And we need the UN Security Council to work for US interests. And and the storytelling too, just learning um, how to paint vivid pictures of the people that you're encountering. You'd be amazed in diplomacy. Well, you wouldn't because you've seen it, but at just the turgid kind of timeless talking points that have no heart and are totally, uh, you know, pre, it's preordained that they're not going to convince anybody to do anything differently because they're just statements of one's preference that don't make any effort to bridge distances and that don't, you know, open up the fact that we actually have 
a fair amount in common. Even if we work for governments that are at loggerheads, we're mothers, let's say, or we're baseball fans or basketball fans, or we're immigrants to our country, you know, looking for those those uh, sort of common circles of overlap, let's say, with people with whom we disagree. I, I think that that training as as a writer and and just, again, trying to to make incommensurate worlds, connect in some way, I think is is actually really, really helpful in, in politics and in geopolitics. Um, Ambassador, when you served under the Obama administration, you had to do a complicated balancing act between your natural idealist instincts and realism. It's kind of what your whole book is about. Um, when it comes to handling high stakes foreign policy issues or just one's personal life, when is the best time to lean into your idealistic side? And when is the best time to fall back and be a little bit more realist? And do you have any more examples of that? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'd say is I feel, I don't know, Alyssa, having gone through the grinder, the White House, if she feels the same way, but I feel very continuous with my unadulterated idealist self insofar as what I, and, and of course now I'm out of government and, and have been teaching and can sound off and, and I'm not, it's not mediated in the way that it was when I was at the White House or, or at the UN. But, but I think it's important to, to know what you want some sliver of the world to look like and, and to know what the change is that, that you think would be optimal. Not going to be perfect. None of us are utopian, but, but it would be kind of shocking now in 2021, especially, but even when we went into the Obama administration, if you weren't idealistic, if you define idealism as believing the world is not as it ought to be and, and that changes are needed, right? It would be shocking with racial injustice and economic inequality and climate change alone, even if you didn't get to some of the issues that I'd worked on, on human rights and mass atrocities and so forth. And so... So I think just I think what's challenging is you you want to you want to keep and protect space to know who you are and what you want to see, and then and and never lose that. That's what Obama used to call the kind of north star, right? Like what is your what is the vector that you w- would wish that your institution or the world were on towards some different <laughs> set of circumstances, and then. Where I got smarter, not smart probably, but just smarter, is then how do you do it? And that's, I think, where the realism comes in. So I I don't know that the objectives change so much. I mean, yes, you do have to make assessments about what to prioritize and and so forth. And so there's there's a realism in that. But the realism is really like, okay, now, how the hell am I going to get the Pentagon to want to cut off military assistance to the Egyptian government after they've carried out a massacre. Like, that's going to be really hard. Okay, so is that, is that, that's not, my, my idealism hasn't gone anywhere. It's just, it's problem solving around tactics. And in that case, I was not wholly successful, but, but what I did was build as big a coalition as I could and get as many people on the same page so that in meetings we were emboldened to know that even though, uh, you know, it, there'd be initially crickets would be the response to a proposal to do something controversial like that. It was emboldening for each of us to know that someone else was out there in the room who was going to come in over the top. Because uh, in in institutions of any kind, whether government or companies or the academy where I am now, you know, the university, uh, being that person to be the skunk at the lawn party is hard. But if you know there are other skunks in the room, it's it actually, you can break the seal a little more easily. So, so it's, 
you know, and, and then when you lose, which happens, I think it would be a loss if the disappointment was discounted by realism, if you know what I mean. Like, I think, mm-hmm. I think, because mm-hmm. then you don't get back up and think the next time there's a moment of opportunity or when there, the, you see on the hill that something might be brewing on Capitol Hill that might be brewing that might actually help your cause. If you're kind of like, ah, yeah, I sort of expected that. Like, it is the military, the Egyptian military after all. Of course, that was going to be challenging. And and so I think to live the disappointment and to continue to feel, uh, you, you, of course you get a little bit jaded at the edges, uh, or if you've if you tried and failed a few times, you may be le- less likely to kind of push the boulder up the hill again. But it mm-hmm. is, I think, tactical realism about coalition building, uh, about how to frame what you're doing in terms that will be appealing to people who don't share your background, right? Who've got different. Um, priorities and so forth, but try to try to step into their shoes and think. Okay, well, how how if if I were to get them to come onto my side of this issue, what is it in their on their agenda uh, that I can maybe play with here? And so that I so I think that that's mm-hmm. on reflection, kind of how the idealism and realism come together, rather than the more traditional story, which is ah. Oh, I went in believing we could do big things, and then you know learned that life was brutish, nasty, and short, or whatever. I, that's, that, I mean, I came out of eight years in the Obama administration having been just privileged to be a part of his, you know, negotiating the Paris Agreement, securing the Iran nuclear deal so we wouldn't have war with Iran, mobilizing a big global coalition to end the Ebola epidemic, uh, being able, him giving me license, he, Obama, giving me license to try to get political prisoners out of jail and to be a kind of activist diplomat in a way that was a little unfashionable at the at the time. And so, if anything, my idealism about what you could do, what one person can do uh, as part of a team like that um, was was affirmed. but but I hope I'm more sophisticated now about of how to how to get where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Sam, in your book, you are very open about your struggle to find work-life balance, especially while working in the Obama administration. Um, with work usually winning. And so now to me, this is all very relatable because I think it's a story for so many people, uh, especially who worked in the White House. But I remember Armenian Genocide Day in 2009 very vividly. And I was wondering if you could tell us all about the day that Declan was born, how the day started, how the day started. Thank you so much. Well, if if my writing about uh, the inelegance of my work-life balance uh, read familiar. It's also because I was very inspired as I wrote you uh, by your book, Alyssa, and you're opening up all of that. I mean, it really, that was for me new to share some of the the internal struggles that we have as we uh, juggle far too much um, in, imperfectly. And, and so you really... Um, blazed a trail there, I thought, with your with your first memoir really, really had an impact on me. Um, so uh, to your question, it was actually the day before. So I, I'll just, it's, I'll tell this story as succinctly as I can. But on April 23rd, uh, 2009, I was around eight months pregnant. And Barack Obama, the president, been president only for a few months, was giving a set of Holocaust remembrance remarks uh, on Capitol Hill. And because I had contributed a little bit, just a few ideas to the remarks, I was invited uh, to uh, go and attend the speech. And this actually, Alyssa, was my first time in the bubble, in the van, 
Uh, Sarah Hurwitz, uh, one of Obama's speechwriters, invited me and got me a seat. And I'm sure you facilitated it from the cockpit uh, in the Oval or near the Oval. But, but bottom line is, I'm so excited I get to go to the speech, but my heart is kind of breaking because in the week previous, I had lost the debate to have Obama fulfill a promise he'd made on the campaign to, campaign to recognize the Armenian genocide. And because my first book had been about American response to genocide, I'd written about the Armenian genocide, and because I promised the Armenian American community who really campaigned hard for Obama that he would recognize, I also knew that I was going to have the task of telling them that he was that this was not going to happen because of the relationship with Turkey and a fear that as we got our troops out of Iraq, we could, you know, destabilize a region for the sake of something that uh, to some could be viewed as a, a symbolic uh, recognition. To me, it seems like telling the truth, and it's not symbolic to tell the truth. But nonetheless, that was the argument on the other side, which prevailed. So the, the challenge was, as happens often in government, is you, you often are, are fighting these fights over paper or over email, and you don't actually have the chance to, to make the case to the person that you think is actually most likely to agree with you, which in this case was Barack Obama. And so I was, I had been on the campaign before I had to leave the campaign. And I had been, uh, you know, in email touch with Obama before he became president many times a day, as you were, Alyssa. And then suddenly I don't have his email. There are all these layers. I can't just walk into the Oval. I certainly don't have walk-in privileges. I'm a, you know, mid-level staffer, uh, lucky to have a job after the whole (laughs) controversy uh, in the campaign. And so I, I just don't have a way of talking to him. And so it's a fait accompli. The decision is made. And I think, oh, don't I? Like, you know, he's breaking his promise. And 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 I wonder if anybody's even talked to him about it. You know, you just never know, really, uh, in terms of how these things work. So I went to hear the remarks, having lost this, my first uh, big defeat on a human rights-related issue. And I end up just, everybody takes their seats. Um, and I end up in kind of limbo because I'm deciding, do I sit? Do I stand? I'm a staffer, so I should stand, but I'm very pregnant, so maybe they'll let me sit. And so I equivocate for too long, and I don't understand the bubble and how in the bubble you cannot equivocate or you get left behind. And so I got left behind, and a security guard came up and was going to actually forcibly remove me from this area in the Capitol because they thought I was like some kind of vagabond or something. And next thing I hear, (laughs) my friend who happens now suddenly to be the president, who I haven't really been in touch with since he be- became president and took the oath, saying, hey, she's with me, leave her alone. And so instead of thinking, what a, what a great coincidence and what a nice chance to say hello and find out how he's doing, the light bulb goes off in my mind. I'm like, Armenian genocide, <laughs> this, is my, this is my chance. I've lost, <laughs> I've lost the debate. Let me now raise this issue with him. And unfortunately, he had left his version of the bubble, which is a much more sacred bubble than, than the one I was in, to use the restroom. <laughs> and so he's like trying to go into the restroom and he just sort of idly, you know, hoping he can just check the box and move on. You know, hey, how you doing? And like makes a comment about, you know, my tummy and, you know, how how I look good, you know, eight months in and, and asking about my due date and, and Cass, my husband. And so he's trying to have like nice little social, friendly, friendly and so when he says, how are you doing? I said, not so good. He's like, why? Is everything okay? You know, I'm really worried about the Armenians. <laughs> and his face, just like the rage, you know. And, the, and it was so inappropriate. I mean, I just didn't know what was appropriate and what was inappropriate. But bottom line is, when he, and this is true of all of us, when we feel bad about something, we're like 
way less nice, right? Like if if he if he actually <laughs> was totally sold on the course of action that we were pursuing, he'd have been, I think, very kind of low key. And but he was he 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 knew that this was a really tough one, and that and that there were people who were going to be really disappointed, and he felt terrible about it. And so I, because I raised it, you know, ended up being the recipient of some of that uh, frustration and a little bit of defensiveness. So so we had the least pleasant conversation of uh, our our time knowing each other. And what I realized a couple hours later, I didn't notice at the time because I knew nothing about babies. Uh, and I thought from the movies that when your water breaks, it's like some gushing thing that happens. <laughs> so I didn't really take it amiss that I, as I was listening to his remarks, I was feeling a little off. And I thought I was just upset because I was kind of crying about what had happened. And, and instead, <laughs> as I was sort of like crying and yet also like felt like, was it extra humid? What was actually happening? Anyway, it turned out my water had broken. And so, <laughs> and I didn't realize it because it was just in a more gradual way than in the movies. And so, but, but you know, within a few hours when I got back to the White House, I thought I should probably call just in case. And so I told them, I'm feeling like a little moist, a little <laughs> something might be good. And they're like, get your ass over to Sibley Hospital immediately. And so I was admitted that night and my water had broken whether in this conversation or in the seat as I listened to him commemorate the Holocaust in his remarks. And as a result of all this, thank you for asking, Alyssa, my son Declan was born about a month early, but on Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day, which was the next day, April 24th. So we light a candle uh, every year. You can imagine my son's uh, ambivalence about this story, about everything about this story, but but uh, and I think it's the part of my book uh, that Obama liked the least. That chapter titled <laughs> April twenty fourth. He really he's not a fan of that chapter of the education of an idealist. But it's it is a, a oh, sort of man. poignant story, and a, and a, I mean just the way these things come together, life, work, you know, as you yeah. know, these jobs are kind of all the same. Uh, the thing you said about the water breaking is so funny because, you know, as I've known more and more people, more and more my friends have had children, the more I'm like, oh, this is all completely in opposition to what I've seen in movies. Oh, yeah. Movies are written by men. <laughs> There's that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe women should be writing about childbirth instead of men That's being like, and point. it gushes. Yeah, totally. Big pools of water, like under death. I'm like, <laughs> no, it does happen. It can happen that way, but... Those people to whom it happens in that way won't be under, it won't be confused about what's happening to them. I think it's the vast majority of other people who fall somewhere on the spectrum that need to be educated. So your listeners now will will be informed in a way that I was not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and luckily now we have like a lot more internet than we used to have where <laughs> both good and bad information can be obtained. Um, okay, so we like to end on a light note. Probably our most important question. Uh, in 2016, Forbes named you as the 41st most powerful woman in the world. Now, as a woman and as a human, how did it feel to be on that list? Did you feel powerful? And does your last name help you at all fully realize your power <laughs> in the world? Well, let's see. I, though, I don't think that one in government, that the even though that there's an aspiration that everybody has to be more impactful and thus to amass power in order to pursue what one is there to do. I don't know anybody who actually feels powerful in government, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like, I think you're just, yeah. and, I, and I think this extends to the president, is that you're just the salience of 
the constraints is so great. So, you know, uh, I think I think it was, uh, you know, really challenging for the the president. For example, everybody thinks the president's going to close Guantanamo Bay. That was one of my objectives as a longtime Obama supporter and staffer. And and then and everybody blames Obama because he didn't close Guantanamo Bay, which makes perfect sense. He's the president. He's the commander in chief. But Mm-hmm. the Congress wrote into our appropriations bills that we couldn't uh, bring any of the prisoners in Guantanamo to the United States and we couldn't pay for that. And and that's just an example of the president feeling a constraint and yet, you know, mm-hmm. things being ascribed to you. And so I felt that way on Syria, especially, you know, I had written so much about mass atrocities and how the United States should be really responsive and open the toolbox and be very creative. And 500,000 people were killed in Syria. So it, it there was a tinniness to any time somebody would approach me on a list or an award or this. I just, oh, God, really? And um, and I will say, and Alyssa, you were you were probably there. I only heard about it later. But when Obama, you know, the, the whatever about the Forbes list or this list, Obama got the Nobel Prize. I was right? there. Obama, yeah. Obama got the, the biggest news of all. Uh, and I bet that was one of the low points of his presidency in terms yeah. of like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> because it's like, no, like people already had all these expectations and now they don't know what it's like working with Mitch McConnell. It's hard, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was Sam, so early. his response, his response was like, I saw him first thing in the morning and I was like, so the Nobel Prize, he's like, wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually not very negative, at least. That's kind of like, it's an out-of-body experience almost. You know, he's just floating and, and things right. are happening to him. But um, but yeah, it's just, Aaron, to your question, it's, it's you so want to get things done in the short period you have. And I actually think having had four years of Trump, the people in the current administration must be in just more of a hurry, right? Because mm-hmm. to institutionalize and lock things down and make sure that nobody else can come around in the future and and take it down. And, and so that makes you just very focused on the score, the real world scoreboard rather than the like lists and frills mm-hmm. and so forth. At least that, that was my reaction. I was kind of like, oh no, now they think I'm going <laughs> to, they're going to point to the discrepancy between my power and, and what I'm actually able to, to do on a given day. But, um, uh-huh. well, one of your, one of your kids is 11 now, so they're getting into the sassy age. Have they yet been like, how can the 41st most powerful <laughs> woman in the world, 2016, not help me with my algebra work, homework that I have to do? Have they used that against uh, you? There is, there is a little bit of a, you know, you're going to go be a member of the National Security Council and like be seeing Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, but you know, you still haven't really graduated from toast and, and scrambled eggs, like for the family, you know, that this was going to be the time this four years off uh, from being in government, at least was going to be the time where I, you know, learned the guitar, uh, was perfect mom, it compensated for all my time away. And so I'm getting a lot of here we go again, and where did the last, you know, where, where where's the new mom skill set that was going to get, uh, the, you know, the card, that was like my big thing, was after eight years of being in the Obama administration, I was like, I'm going to make a damn Christmas card. <laughs> my, my children, <laughs> at some point in their lives, they are going to be captured, looking angelic. I'm going to find that moment, you know, in a week where they have an angelic look, and uh, here we are, 
heading into Senate confirmation processes, and I still haven't made a damn Christmas card or holiday <laughs> card. <laughs> you should just do it whenever you can find time in your schedule and send it out and be like, this is when I had time. Yeah. <laughs> it is a, it's an August me, card. I've had, on my to-do list has been like Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, <laughs> Easter, July 4th, and somehow those dates have come and gone. But you're right, it can be just Wednesday, the Wednesday <laughs> yeah, card. Yeah, happy Wednesday <laughs> to all my friends and family. Look at my beautiful family. Um, Ambassador Power, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Uh, Samantha Power's memoir, The Education of an Idealist, is now out in paperback. You got to come back and see us again. Sometime. I'd love this to. Was, this was great. I'd love to. You guys are the best. Thank you. And I love listening. So thank you. Thank you. All right, time for a break, but stick around because after this, Tian Tran and Grace Para join on Personal Political. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. And welcome back. We have reached the part of the show where Alyssa and I are joined by two of our favorite people, probably two of your favorite people. Uh, Let me bring those two people on. First, she is a writer, producer, and actor. It's Grace Para. Grace. Guys, hi. It has been a while since I've seen you. I know. It has been far too long. Have I seen you in 2021? Maybe. Yeah, January. Yes. It's all March. It's I just all- consider the year between 20, the, all of pandemic is just March. 2019, March, March, uh-huh. 2022. Yes, that's it. That's it. We're still, we're in the March of our lives, for sure. <laughs> I am so glad to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's been a, a crazy busy time, but everything's going, going great. And I'm so excited to be here. And I'm thrilled to, to be here with you ladies as always. So thank you. Thank you. Well, we're glad to have you up next. She is a writer and a comedian, and she's the head writer, once again, of the CBS Diversity Showcase. Hello, Tian Tran. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. We're so glad you're here today. Um, so I just want to like, just to let our listeners know, you know, we we make the show up. We make the show up. We decide what's going to be in the show um, starting around like Sunday, Monday before we record. And this week, because of what had been going on in the UK and Australia, we had a pretty good idea of what we wanted this conversation to be. Uh, we're recording on Wednesday. On Tuesday, there was a uh, a tragedy in Atlanta. A man um, shot eight people at Asian spas, three different Asian spas. Six of those people were women. And so that has sort of changed the way that the conversation is going to go. So I want to start by quoting a law enforcement official from Atlanta. Um, I don't want to name the guy because, like, who the fuck cares who he is? I don't want to name him. He doesn't deserve a name. Um, But I do want to talk about the way that he's being treated by law enforcement and the press. So uh, there was a press conference with law enforcement. And Alyssa, you watched it, right? Yep. What did you think of it? I mean, 
Look, I'm never quite sure how helpful those press conferences are because they come at a demand for information when people actually don't have all the information. So I don't really think that uh, they ever serve the purpose they are intended to. But, you know, I mean, I think that my takeaway, which I think is where you're going, is that there was a lot of uh, apologize, like excusing or apologizing uh, for what this uh, monster had done, trying to explain uh, it was interesting because they tried to explain what they think was going on uh, while saying that they, I, I hope I don't like undercut what you're about to say, but essentially they were like, he's a sex addict and he was blaming these parlors for giving him sort of like this outlet to do something he knows that he shouldn't be doing. So they, they don't, they say they don't know the motive. They don't think it's a hate crime. He's a sex addict. So mm-hmm. it's like either say you don't know mm-hmm. or say it when you know. Because exactly. I just found it utterly uh, unhelpful and and frankly kind of silly. Yeah. One of the quotes, the quote that stuck out for me, because I didn't watch the whole thing like you did, Alyssa. You have way more intestinal fortitude than I do. <laughs> that's that's um, a compliment. <laughs> yeah. It, it, in the best possible way. Uh, and also the worst, because it means you're watching these press conferences. Um But there was a quote that really stuck out to me. And Tian, I really want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, The quote that stuck out to me was, a law enforcement official said, yesterday was a really bad day for him. And this is what he did. This is a man describing the actions of a man who killed eight people. Tian, I know that this is like a hard story for you. And I just would love to hear you share what's going through your mind and how you feel about that quote. What an insane fucking thing to say. Oh, um, you know, I I am feeling a lot of feelings and most of them are sadness and fear. I I feel upset that I feel scared now um, in a way that I didn't before. I, I feel like walking around in the Midwest by myself and like walking past white men when I'm by myself, I'm there. Now I have this like tinge of like, what are they going to say? Cause I already had it happen here. Like some fucking bro college student <laughs> told me to fuck off. Um, and like, why you're the least fuck offable person. I know. Seriously. Um, because he, he tried to give me a high five and I didn't give him one. And he told me to fuck off bitch, which felt like very, both like sexist, but also I, he didn't do it to any of the, like, he just did it to me. And I was on, on the street by myself. Anyway, I think what I, I think my overall fear is that hearing him, hearing that and hearing the fact that they're not saying, they're like, we can't say it's a hate crime. We can't say it's gendered violence. Yeah, that guy isn't going to fucking show up in the police interrogation and say those things. Can we please connect the dots and call it what it is? It is a hate crime and it is gendered violence specifically. It is violence against women. And I saw something that was shared that I think is, is very pertinent to this is that something that is not talked about enough 
with regards to racial violence against Asians is the type of sexual violence that Asian women face, how interconnected that is to violence against those in the sex trade, and how that violence has been so deeply shaped by American imperial wars, wars in Asia. Like, this isn't a new thing, the way that Asian women are sexualized and violence against Asian women and violence against women is because we have this, we allow and are normalizing these patriarchal or like boys will be boys narrative, which is why that guy can say that's the worst day. Like I had a bad day. He was able to center himself because he's like, oh, God damn it. I can center myself and say like, I had a bad day today because I got to go deal with a boy who was being bad. Mm-hmm. I got a speeding ticket. I guess I'm going to commit some hate crimes. Today. Yeah. <laughs> It's a bad day. It's a bad day. Well, and also, not for nothing, they treat these villains, these criminals, these murderers, like children. Does anybody think this fucking guy doesn't know the penalty is a (sighs) hundred times stiffer if it is categorized as a hate crime? So, like, why? That's why I think that these press conferences are so fucking stupid because like, don't give him the benefit of the doubt. So now you have every anchor on every cable news channel being like, he he said it wasn't a hate crime. (laughs) No, Mm -hmm. like, are you fucking kidding me? Give Mm -hmm. me a break. Yeah. Right. Right. Because people are tainted by the first information they receive about Exactly. And that's sort of like the, the problem with breaking news reporting is that, yeah, I think it would be really irresponsible for police to come out and say definitively, yes, this 100%, we know we have evidence that this is what happened. Um, but it's also irresponsible of the news media to report it without like a pile of grains of salt. Like, just to preface, this is an ongoing investigation. This is what we for sure know. This is what we don't know. Here's some wild shit the cops say based on nothing, you know? And that's what that's what it feels like to me. I want to tie this into kind of the larger point here because the excuse making is something we see that in often, in a lot of cases, accompanies these moments that are like watershed moments where people come together and are like, what the fuck? Something needs to change. It's time for something to change. There's always on the other side of that, somebody saying, well, actually, you know, the person who is doing these things, the person that did this isn't so bad. We're humanizing the person who is the perpetrator and we're villainizing the victims. So um, in Australia this week, Thousands of people, mostly women, participated in marches, and that's because there have been multiple sexual assault allegations involving current members of parliament. Current members of parliament. Um, There is a woman who says she was raped in a minister's office in 2019. Uh, Another person, the attorney general, Christian Porter, was investigated for rape in 1988. Uh, Women are pretty mad about it. And uh, the prime minister, Scott Morrison, so far will not meet with organizers or protesters, which... Look, I know some nice Scots, but that's a typical Scott move, right? <laughs> um, right? It's just like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Scott. Of course you won't meet with them. Come on, dude. <laughs> um, over the past weekend, there were protests in the UK against the abduction and murder of 33-year-old Sarah Everard. Uh, Everard was walking home alone at night in London on March 3rd. On March 9th, a Metropolitan Police officer was arrested for the crime. Um, On the 10th, her remains were found. There was a vigil um, in Clapham Common that uh, grew into a large demonstration. And police responded in a very 
copy way, I'm going to say, when they tackled and arrested several of the women who were armed with candles and signs. Um, So those two protests have gotten a little bit less attention than huge protests that went on in Mexico on International Women's Day. Um, I'm not sure if people read about this, but if you didn't, what is going on in Mexico when it comes to women and girls is major and important. Um, A large crowd carrying their children, blow torches, bats, and hammers protested outside of the National Palace in Mexico City. Um, The protests were sparked because Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador supports Felix Salgado Macedonio, who is a candidate for governor in the state of Guerrero, who has been accused of rape by several women. In addition, uh, Mexico has a super high rate of violence against women. An average of 10 women were killed in Mexico every day last year. There were 16,000 cases of rape. One investigation found that only 5% of sexual assault allegations, including rape, result in a criminal sentence in Mexico. In Turkey on International Women's Day, 13 women were arrested and detained for insulting the president insulting the president. Um, Thousands have marched in India against sexual violence. In the U.S., um, last February, thousands of women protested violence suffered by Native and Indigenous women. In the U.S. and Canada, Native and Indigenous women suffer violence at a much higher rate than other groups. And last year on International Women's Day, one million Chilean women took to the streets in Santiago to protest violence against women. And the next day, they just didn't show up for work to show what it would look like without them. So, I'm not trying to equivocate between all of these movements, um, but what I am trying to do is kind of draw a thread between all of them. Like in every part of the world, women do not feel as safe as men. And there is a reason for that. And the protests are happening in an attempt to change those reasons. Grace, I want to toss to you because every time women gather en masse to protest in, you know, against violence against women, Um, which is overwhelmingly done to us by men. There are men who unhelpfully jump in and claim not all men. What do you make of the not all men guys? You know, it's interesting, especially in the context of of Mexico, because one of the complaints that President Lopez Obrador himself has has issued and and, uh, sort of counter to, to these protests is, look at all the women that I employ. (laughs) <laughs> Look at all the women in my administration. There are more women in my administration than in any administration. So Mexico's fine. We as a country are totally fine because look at how many mm-hmm. women are employed by my by my administration. And I think that we are seeing a. I think that we're seeing that everywhere. I think actually that's something that that uh, Governor Cuomo's office has argued as well. Or you know, look at how many women that I have in my office. So Brett Kavanaugh's done it too. Exactly, exactly. So there's this equivocate, false equivocation that if women are present, if women are employed, then uh, violence against women doesn't exist. But the fact of the matter is that those two things are very, very, very separate. Um, I'll also point because I, I I'm so glad that we're talking about Mexico today. There is an uh, interesting element to. Um, transportation to public transportation in Mexico, which is that they're actually uh, women only subway cars mm-hmm. on subways mm-hmm. because of the amount of violence, which I just, I, I find is striking because, you know, God, for so long, suffragettes in this country and, and feminists across the world have fought for equality so that we can occupy the same public spaces as men. But now we have moved so far in the direction of, of such vicious and tangible violence against women in public spaces that now countries are forced to make spaces 
just for women in in public um, areas and in public uh, public transportation uh, spots. And I find that to be really sad that um, though I'm thrilled mm-hmm. that there is at least an awareness of the kind of violence that's happening um, and that there are moves to make women feel more safe, that there is also just this acceptance that violence is everywhere, mm-hmm. you know? And so rather than change, rather than fix the problem, let's just put a Band-Aid on it by making sure that we're, yeah, that we're providing women-only spaces so we're, it looks like we're doing something. Um, I'm not sure if I, that answered the question, but it was. Yeah. I, 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 I've just been been thinking a lot about about this in particular with with Mexico, um, as I see how they've really mangled the um, the, the response to mm-hmm. these protests. And uh, it is at once heartening that there are so many women that are willing to take to the streets, uh, and men too. You know, not to 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 disregard their involvement. Not no men. Not no men. <laughs> That's the right. other side of not all men. Not no men. Not no men. <laughs> but, um, you know, the one thing that I'll also say, too, is is I do believe that, that a, a thread that we're seeing in many of these protests across the world is the language is a little less pretty in a way that I find uh, really useful. But it's not like we have to support women or like, mm-hmm. let's look out for women. We need to stop rape. We need to stop mm-hmm. misogyny. We need to stop assault against women. We have to stop femicide. I'm, I'm seeing a more, and I think it's because there's more anger in women um, across the world that we are, mm-hmm. you know, we have to be specific and we have to use language that is raw and that is real in order to get the point across because, you know, support all women and let's be there for each other and like give your ladies a hug or whatever bullshit. It's too soft. It's, it's too pretty. Um, and that's, I think, a common mm-hmm. thread that I've seen throughout a lot of these protests that language of like, we support women and that, that sort of softness also completely erases who is doing a lot of the violence. Like so many of these things, it's like the stats of like one in so many women have experienced sexual assault. Okay. Well, like who's doing it? Uh, it uh, like, yeah, it, it's like, okay, so we, all of this violence is happening, but we don't have a perpetrator and we're not going to name him, him, or we're not going to name the men that the, like, that are the violence that is like being put on women is mostly at the hands of men. And like, mm-hmm. we don't name it. And like, I think it's, I think it's very much a systemic thing like you said, Grace, of like having these women only sections on the bus, like it's sad because I think that is, you know, governments and people empower politicians being like, you know what, we do see it's a problem, but again, it is on you women mm-hmm. to take care of yourselves, get on the right train, uh, don't walk home at night, be with friends, you know, all of these things, like we have just normalized for all of our friends and family, women, trans folks, non-binary folks, like to be afraid moving in public space. Mm-hmm. And we have normalized it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like we've totally thrown in the towel on changing the men that are doing the violence. <laughs> yep. We're like, well, they can't be bothered to <laughs> alter their lives in any way whatsoever. So let's totally refashion the train system to accommodate the fact that they can't get better. It's like a it's such a low expectation of what men in general are capable of. Alyssa, I'm, I would love to hear from you about what about men who compare women's fear of being assaulted um, or, you know, raped, but, you know, on their, on their walk home from, from work, like, or from a friend's house, like Sarah Everard. What do you think about men who compare that to their fears of being robbed? Or oh mugged? God. 
So, well, one, just to go back to Grace's point for a second, it shows the inherent laziness, right? Mm-hmm. To say yes. that here is, we're going to give you, which we're going to give you a special train to ride on, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, we're going to increase the penalties against people who commit these crimes. And also, not for nothing, but fucking psychopaths that want to commit crimes against women, putting them all in the same car is not the fucking way to go. (laughs) Like, that's like, and I don't even mean to be funny. Like, logistically, that's a fucking terrible idea. Target on our backs. Yes, exactly. It's terrible. That's a conference. That's a creep conference. We're we're putting them together in a a convention (laughs) situation. Yes. And so, you know, what I say to men who are like, "Mm, you don't know what it's like to worry about being robbed. Okay. When you were 16 and grew up in upstate New York, okay, (laughs) upstate New York at this time, when cows probably outnumbered kids in my high school, and I was taught, you always carry your key between your fingers when you go to your car. Mm -hmm. You always check the back seat of your car Mm -hmm. before you get in it. Like, okay, we've lived with that our whole lives. I have a beeper. I have a beeper thing in my bag. You pull the pin out, it flashes, it makes noise, you know, to try to ward people away. I don't know one man that has that in his car Mm -hmm. or thinks to himself before he leaves to go down to the city, do I have my bird beeper? Just because you never know. So these men, uh, they just, they just... They just don't know. Because guess what? Chances are, if you're really just being straight up robbed and you give them your money, they're going to leave you the fuck alone. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's not what happens when a woman gets assaulted because Mm -hmm. she's about to be fucking raped. Mm -hmm. So I think that those guys need to just continue their membership in the Not All Men Club Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, leave the the opining on uh, safety concerns to people who actually have them. Mm -hmm. Um, Tian... I'm, if you're comfortable sharing, um, do you remember the first? Because Alyssa said that like for our whole lives, we're walking with our keys, you know, between our fingers and everybody was nodding here. Um, and I've tried to think about this for myself. Like, do you remember the first time that you felt like compelled to either fear sexual violence or speak out against it? And and what happened? I I can think about like the fear of it. Um, I come from a family of all sisters. I have three sisters and I, my mom and I, and my oldest sister used to go to New York a lot together because my sister was in Ghostwriter. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Word. And I, I just remember like anytime we got, like truly anytime we got into a car would always look in the back, like non, like without question would always look in the back. And the other thing I remember is being like, it has happened a lot of times, but like being at a bar and some man trying to pass through and like touching the back of my, like the bottom of my back. And I spoke up and I was like, don't do that. And he took offense to that. And it's little moments like that, that allow for things to trickle to larger, like the, the level of entitlement that men move through space feeling like they can put their hands in places on women in a certain way. Like that's a a small thing, but it made me feel violated. And I spoke up and he took offense to that and thought I was like, tried to make me feel like I was not, like I was in the wrong. That it You're was the a- wrong for not liking the thing <laughs> that he did. Yeah. Like it's, it's his, res- he's, he can do whatever he want. And your responsibility is to like it. To like it. 
I, uh, I, one of the last things that I did in a public space right before the pandemic was, uh, it was at a mall and I almost got into a fight with a dude. This is real. Angry Grace never comes out, but I was trying to pay for something at some department store. My husband was trying on like shoes in a different area and I was trying to pay for something. And this guy rolls up and he's got like a group of women around him and he just, steps in my space. Like he can tell that I'm checking out, but I'm not Mm -hmm. done yet. And he just, you know, he gets, he gets so close to me that his elbow is like in my ribs and he's laughing and he's gesticulating and he's making his presence very well known. He's taking up a lot of space. And like you, Tian, I said something, I was like, I'm not done here or something. And it was a little, it was a little, you know, curt, but it wasn't like, fuck you. It was just like, I'm not done yet. And he was like, oh, really? Wow, you want to start a fight? He got into my face about it. And I, it took everything I had, and I didn't hold back. I was like, no, sir, I'm just trying to stay in my space here to finish my transaction or whatever. And it was just, it was a perfect example of exactly what you're talking about, that men move through space expecting us to move out of the way for them, which is emblematic of the conversation that we're having. Men move through life expecting to take up the space that they're going to make the decisions that they are going to. And we as women are expected to mold to that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when that is challenged, violence occurs, which is mm-hmm. why I, I believe that we are seeing these greater threads of violence all over, all over the world. Do you think that it's more violence or do you think that it's women being like, no, dude, like, cause if you look at like what women face throughout history, I feel like the difference now is not the level of violence. It's women being like, no. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. That and and that's what what men are uncomfortable with. That they are not historically accustomed to women actually speaking up against mm-hmm. it. But you're right that the violence has occurred throughout history. It, it is not new. It is not new by any means. Mm-hmm. It's. <laughs> I am on a lot of sports Instagrams, and the comment section is truly wild place for sexism. But anytime there's like female athletes or any sort of mention of equality, there is always someone who's like, okay, well, if it's going to be equality, well, then can I punch a woman? And it's like, can, can the equality be that nobody gets punched? Like, (laughs) I mean, my comeback for that is like, I don't know. Can you have a baby? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Division, division of labor, women, like somebody born with a uterus who's reproductively capable has certain abilities and some people can do pushups, you know? (laughs) But the, the thought that like immediately equality to that person was like, okay, well then can I fight them? Can I like, (laughs) can I go box a woman? And it's like, no, I think it's, I think it's okay if we, nobody gets punched. Like, I think a blanket of no violence is the equality that we're trying to get to. Right. Because I think in some ways men have falsely equivocated masculinity with Mm -hmm. violence as though to be a man inherently means to be violent. And that Mm -hmm. when we challenge violence, we are challenging masculinity. Mm -hmm. But those things are not one and the same. You can be a man and not be violent. Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. And I think it's like, Alyssa, I was, you know, you and I have kind of like texted a little bit about like protest movements stateside, like here in the U.S. Um, when it comes to like women standing up against gender inequality, like the Women's March, you know, that was one of the biggest demonstrations globally in, in history when it happened in 2017. But before that, there were slut walks and then there was like take back the night. Yeah. Um, do you feel frustrated that this issue is coming up not only in the U.S., but globally over and over again? And 
Do you see that as like us repeating our mistakes? And what needs to change, do you think, in order for something to be considered like a success? Ah, uh, let's see. So here's what I think. I think that it is all successful, right? Mm-hmm. It's all successful because the truth is that before people were suffering in silence, before, you know, one of the most interesting things about the Women's March back in uh, January of 17 wasn't that there were massive crowds in New York and LA. It's that thousands of cities participated. And it's that actual percentages of populations in places like Alaska participated. And so I think that sometimes it's looked at as these problems are like elitist. It's just white ladies. They're just, they want to wear their merch and they want to go out and march. And I think that what these protests all do is is really kind of bring everybody's stories out. There, There's not one kind of issue that, that galvan. well, actually, Donald Trump sort of galvanized people around the Women's March. Mm-hmm. But there were so many different experiences that people had in their own lives that got them out to march and to see all these other women and to meet all these other people and families who had had either similar problems or different problems and to realize that, like, it takes everybody to be loud about these issues and say, yeah, you think, you know, you think you pass some laws, you think that we all wear matching shirts and that everything's fixed and fine, and it's not. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, though, I think that by continuing to march, I mean, look, I think that, and I'm not being America-centric here, but I think that the movement of the Women's March galvanized all sorts of communities across the world that started talking about the problems in their communities, which may have been very different than the ones that started the marches here in America. And so I think that getting people together so that they know that they're not alone, they're forming support systems, they strengthen their communities when they do um, these sort of demonstrations of, of solidarity by getting together and marching. And they also just continue to remind people it's not over. It's mm-hmm. not fixed. You know, mm-hmm. just because Donald Trump's not president anymore doesn't mean it's fixed in America. Just because Argentina has legalized abortion doesn't mean that it's mm-hmm. easy to be accessed, doesn't mean that women have exactly information about how to get it done safely and properly. I mean, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, too, that even when laws are passed, it doesn't mean necessarily that they are implemented. There's a big difference between mm-hmm. a passing of a law and the implementation of a law uh, that, that can take generations to fix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, look at what happened in Chile. Chile is an example of like a super dramatic uh, cause and seeming effect. Like the 1 million women marching in Santiago in 2020. At the end of last year, they got a whole ass new constitution like that, that, that uh, mandates gender parity in, uh, in government representation. Like they rewrote their constitution. And I think it was a long time coming uh, because their old constitution was like a relic from the Pinochet area, era. And I think they probably wanted to move on beyond that. But, you know, it it works. And I think that it's like, it's not just like a legal change. I think it's also a cultural change and mm-hmm. you can't really legislate culture. So Tien, I want to end with you because we have to move on to the next segment of the show. But I mean, look, I I hate that I feel the need to even say this. Like we all know and like some men, we're all fine with some, some men that we know my, some of my favorite dads are men. Um, but, uh, you know, it does seem like the common thread here is men. Like, do you think that giant, uh, women's movements are changing men's minds and how should men 
go about, like the good men, how should the good men go about changing the culture that the bad men are um, are displaying? I mean, I do think it's changing the culture for men. And I think for, you know, quote, good men is is to speak up and and say something and to, you know, advocate for women who aren't related to you, you know, just like advocate for women across the board. If you don't know them, um, when you see something that happens that you speak up, like, for example, I hate to bring him up, but, you know, that the, the reporter from Good Morning Britain that spoke up against Piers Morgan, it was it was that. If a mm-hmm. woman had, I, I really believe that if a woman had tried to confront him, that he would have pushed back, not listen, interrupted. And yeah. it takes, and I think it, it does, it takes like, men, if you're hanging out with all your boys, picking fantasy football drafts, and someone says something sexist or homophobic, say something. Mm-hmm. Because I think those, like you said, culturally, it, it's both legislative, but also culturally. Like if we allow for these jokes that are sexist, homophobic, and racist to continue to get just a pass, it dehumanizes people in a way that then trickles into rhetoric that then turns into legislation that is violent. Mm -hmm. And then also that like seeps into people's brains in a way that leads to white supremacist violence. So, you know, and I say white supremacist because I think that is all entangled with like how violence against women as well. Mm -hmm. And so- good men out there to speak up. We, we need you. We need you to help us push back against this bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like use your power if you have it and you're not using it. What's the, what's the point of mm-hmm. even having it? If you're, if you're one of those guys, that's like, you know, I I've got privilege. I've got privilege. I love women. I'm a feminist. Like, okay. Yeah. Use that and be uncomfortable sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's literally, we're uncomfortable a lot of the time. So maybe like, I'm uncomfortable right now. And I, I'm like, I'm totally uncomfortable. Oh, it's like, it's like we get our periods once a month. They should also pick one week of the month where they're very uncomfortable and they stand up against everything. They too can have a period. (laughs) That's what I meant when I said I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Oh, congrats, Grace. (laughs) Um, Yeah, do it. Take a week every month, men, and just be like, I'm going to be a pain in the ass to every man that is a sexist Mm -hmm. or a homophobe or a racist. I will buy you Advil. I will bring you ice cream if you do that. I I think it's only fair. Um, Okay, let's take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to switch gears and do I feel petty. And welcome back. We are almost at the end of the show, but not quite there, which means it's time for us to air our petty feelings. It is I feel petty. I'll go first because I think mine is dumb. I wish everybody could hear us like shuffling around what order we're going to go in because we have like this kind of one downsmanship vibe on the show. Mine's worse. No, mine's worse. It's like a humility bee. Um, Okay. I'm going to go first. So it's, this isn't that petty. This is something that bothers me all the time. Um, But you know, it's international, it's women's month or women's history month or whatever. And we had international women's day and stuff, which means that Um, a lot of things that don't do dick to help women are trying to sell me things on the basis of 
a false feeling of them doing nice things for women. I think that cause marketing, if it's actually backed up with like cool action and cool initiatives is like, I'm totally behind it. I love it. I love intentional inclusion of people. Uh, this is the system we live in, whatever. It's, it's fine. But you know what I don't like? I don't like being told that like a house cleaner is empowering. <laughs> just let it be, like let things be normal. Like there are things that are just not empowering products. For, it's yeah. not powerful yeah. for yeah. me to buy this product. This, you know what I mean? This toilet paper, it's not a <laughs> I'm just, right. I'm just trying to keep it clean down there. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know what? Let's just talk about it as little as possible. It's just for cleaning my asshole. I don't need any more. I don't need any more thoughts on this. But I think the worst part is when things that are harmful to women are marketed to us as empowering. Like, um, I think I've seen a couple advertisements for like scented feminine products and like douche products that are like, you go girl. It's like, no, you don't go girl. That's that's bad for the for the un, for the nether regions and we we it's like it's it, it it drives me nuts when things that are actually bad for us or that make us feel like shit or that that like perpetuate harmful mm-hmm. stereotypes are marketed to us as somehow empowering i am against it i and it and it annoys me and the thing is i think i don't think i'm like that much smarter than most people i think i'm about like at the 60% <laughs> like oh, oh no. no queen Erin <laughs> is a genius let's just let's just put that out there we love you. That's a terrible thing to think because I will go mad with power. Um, but the the thing is, like, I think that most people are not dumb enough mm-hmm. to fall for those things. And the fact that they keep hammering it over and over is like, come on, man. You're really going to try to tell me that this douche product is empowering? Everybody learns in sex ed that it's bad for you. Like, it's it's so annoying. I fe- it feels very, very painful. That's, that's, that's like, like some CEO advertising man. That's like Don Draper being like, you know what? I know exactly what women need this month. <laughs> exactly. And then whatever the Peggy Olsen equivalent is in the, that <laughs> meeting is like, I'm leaving. Um, okay, Tian, what do you feel petty about this week? You know, okay, I'm going to, along the themes of International Women's History Month, um, there is a House Hunters International episode um, (laughs) that I watched recently. (laughs) And I just, it's probably from several years ago, House Hunters International Germany. I just want to call out the husband who moved his entire family, his pregnant wife and two little girls. And every time they went to the house, he, she kept on being like, I really just want to move somewhere that is like close to, okay, <laughs> I just want to move somewhere that has community because we're moving our family across the world. I want my girls to be able to play with other kids. And he kept on being like, it's about the commute for me. It's about, I need it to be closer to the office God. for me. And so the options were like two stunning homes in like city center and so cool, close to community or the house that is in the section that they called industrial lies that has no homes around it. It is, there's like no community. There are no stores. And he kept on being like, this is the best for me. I, I, this is actually, this is the best for me. And (laughs) Alyssa Alyssa is crying. Alyssa is crying. That's why I had to stop watching House Hunters because I would scream at the television. If you're making the move, you don't get the vote. Like, you don't, you don't get, get the vote. vote. You don't get the, if you are making everyone move, you if you are making everyone move, you don't get to go this is the best for me. 
I started uh-huh, taking, uh-huh. I actually, it felt really good. Um, I started giving the TV the middle finger. I was like, fuck, fuck you, man. <laughs> it felt very liberating. But I feel petty about that. That husband in the Germany episode, I hope you're They're all over TN. Because- they're in Ireland. They're in France. <laughs> they're in Spain. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. All you husbands yeah. and in House Hunters International, you don't get to pick the house. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like the complete, the lack of the culture. I follow a lot of like threads on Reddit or like communities on Reddit because I love like learning about people's bad lives. It makes me feel good that I have an okay one. Um, And there's all of these like, there's always like, am I the asshole? My wife's pregnant and she doesn't want to move into a fifth floor walk up, but I <laughs> yes, really like it. Am you I are, it's like, why? Yes, yes, you have are some fucking empathy. Yes. <laughs> you are always, if your like pregnant wife wants something or you're the mother of your children who takes care of your children is like, I have all these children to take care of and this is not good for me. And you're not having empathy or for them. Or maybe mm-hmm. there are you no are children involved, but there's just one person who always carries the fucking groceries. Okay. So fuck you. <laughs> fuck you and your five flights. I'm, yeah. I mean, so many of the house hunters, international men are like, I made her give up her dream to move to a place where she has no one and knows nothing about the country. Maybe I could give her a little bit larger of a kitchen. And you're like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I could give her a bigger room for her to make me snacks. Uh, <laughs> um, Alyssa, what is your I feel petty this week? Oh, God. So you guys got to be honest. Didn't know Sharon Osbourne still existed. <laughs> oh. Had no idea. <laughs> had no idea she was on a talk show. Had no idea. But I feel like there are a lot of other people that could potentially take her spot. Yes. That aren't so... What's the word? Like offensive? <laughs> offensive, I guess, uh-huh, is the word. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I can't believe it. You know, people always tell on themselves when they try to defend themselves. Uh-huh. And so it's like, look, girl, you really fucked up. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if I were you, I'd have gotten out there and be like, I lost my shit. I was so wrong. I was really just defending my friend and I went too far. And what I should have said is that I defend him, but not what he did or something. Instead, she just doubled down. And now every person who has ever co-hosted that show with her has come out and said, you know what, Sharon, you've said some wild shit. Yashar's newsletter really sort of laid it all bare the other night. And I just, I guess my petty is, hey, Sharon, didn't even know you were still alive. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. And it's extremely petty. I support it 100%. Thank you. Thank you. It was either that or Ron DeSantis is like a cadaver that's been in the Hudson. And this just seemed like better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the governor of Florida is not doing so great. He looks like he has... He got his hair from a grave robbery (laughs) in the the 70s. Um, Okay, Grace, bring us home. Okay, all right. Listen, I have seen the arguments about the (laughs) the skinny jean, that we can't wear skinny jeans anymore, that we got to wear mom jeans, that we, you know, bell bottoms. I, I, I am, I am of the millennial generation and I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to wear, but here's my, I feel petty. 
I don't even <laughs> want to be wearing jeans. <laughs> like jeans are a lie that have been fed to us for generations now and it needs to stop. They're not comfortable. They're not cozy. I don't like them. I'm not a woman who lives in her jeans. I don't like, you can't separate me from my Calvins or whatever. Yes, you can. You always can. Anything can get in between me and my Calvins because I don't own any and I don't want to own any. So the conversation is us trying to, it's always me trying to figure out what style of jeans I want when I don't even want them? What is a style of something that you need to incorporate into your wardrobe when you don't even want it at all? Mm-hmm. So my I feel petty is that. I, I just, I, I, I get rid like, of the jeans. <laughs> Are you wearing jeans right now? No, <laughs> <bitch>. <laughs> I got soft joggers on. I'm all about the soft jogger. I like leggings. I like joggers. I like, you know, tailored, like kind of spanksy sort of things. That's fine on occasion. Oh yeah. Bike shorts. Love bike Dude, shorts. shorts. The pandemic has introduced me back to the yes. magic of the bike yep. short. Yep. Yep. But yes. I will tell you what though. Jeans have no place in my life and I don't know that they ever will again. I love it. Um, yeah. I just don't see, Grace, to, to, to add to what you're saying, I completely agree. I don't see us going back to jeans after this, man. We can't, we can't agree on a style. They're never flattering. There's not like one style that is flattering for every woman's body. It's just not that it doesn't exist. So, mm-hmm. you know, stop trying to sell us something that's not comfortable, that isn't universally stylish, that fucking sucks. It probably has some <laughs> human rights violations. I just yeah, yeah, that yeah, up. Probably <laughs> All right. I think that's fair. Okay. And so now we've gotten everything we feel petty about, I believe. For today. I've been, I have like a whole notes app thing, <laughs> like where I'm just like, what do I, oh, I don't like it when people don't use their turn signals at a stop sign or like <laughs> the yellow flavor of Gatorade should die. Like it's just. It should though. That one's um, a bad flavor. Oh, disgusting. It's, it's so bad. It's bad. bad. It's, it's bad. the bad. only bad. one. Bad. And it's the only one well. they give out during road races. So if you like are somebody who does like 5Ks or whatever and it's always warm. Ew. And it looks, oh. it's just warm yellow liquid no. when you're running. Just no. drink pee at that point. No. no. Gross, okay. Grace. Yeah. <laughs> Too far. We all no, but she's not. She's not wrong. <laughs> oh my gosh. Guys, I wish this show was like five hours <laughs> yeah. long. Um, Tien and Grace, thank you so much for coming by. Alyssa, thank you for being my ride or die for this week where we had like five recording <laughs> sessions. Thank you to Florida Agricultural Commissioner Nikki Freed. Thank you to Ambassador Samantha Power. And thanks most of all to you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria for you next week. I am from another planet. This nation fucked Janet. But these girls got a fan it. Y2K email and scan it. Don't take no furnace. Hysteria is a crooked media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Malconian and Magic Group. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 